Okay. Good? <laughs> A little bit scared to breathe here. Okay. So, perhaps the universe doesn't want us to have one last Dharma talk. So here we are, very close to the end of the retreat, with just a day and a half to go. And with the ending of the retreat, we have a very valuable opportunity to notice our default patterns, some of the ways that we might habitually relate to endings. Because how we relate to endings on retreat is probably how we're going to relate to them in daily life too. And I think some of us, we have the tendency to skip over endings and just jump right to the next thing that's going to bring us happiness, or so we think. And others of us may have the tendency to hold on tightly and resist letting go for as long as possible. So sort of metaphorically riding our meditation cushions, trying to squeeze out the very last drop of insight. And others have the tendency to go into denial, to tune out and to barely even register that change is occurring until suddenly we're back at home or back at work or back in our families and wondering what just happened. So these are all very common reactions to endings. And often we find ourselves flip-flopping between all of them which, as you've probably recognized, are all manifestations of our uh, well-known friends or frenemies, greed, hatred, and delusion. But it's not all bad because I'm pretty sure that all of you have also at times experienced some moments of equanimity, just that capacity to know what's happening without getting caught in reactivity. And we might even surprise ourselves at times with the this newfound way of orienting to all the changes that are going on right now. And I'll be saying more about equanimity later, but for now I just want to acknowledge that whatever you're experiencing as this retreat comes to an end, this can be a poignant and challenging time. And also still a very powerful time. A powerful time to keep bringing awareness to how we're relating to our experience. Because whether you're desperate to get out of here or savoring every last moment or abiding in equanimity or perhaps alternating between all of these, the truth of impermanence is very clear right now. And thanks to the Buddha's teachings, we also have the resources to meet all this change. These two wings to awakening that I've referred to many times now of wisdom and compassion. So as we ride this sometimes wild roller coaster of change, there's lots of potential for both wisdom and compassion to arise and to be powerfully strengthened, which is good news because definitely we're going to need these resources as we emerge from this retreat. One thing we can be sure of is that the rest of the world hasn't changed too much while we've been gone. Unfortunately, the rest of the world hasn't been on self-retreat while we've been here. The rest of the world is still smoldering or burning with the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. 
So chances are when we leave this temporary refuge, we are going to encounter some dukkha. But this is exactly what we've been practicing for all this time, isn't it? The silence and the solitude and the seclusion of this retreat, they weren't intended as an end in themselves, as some kind of escape from so-called reality. Instead, these specialized conditions, they've created a temporary refuge to help us strengthen wisdom and compassion so that when we do return to our daily lives, we have a much better chance of living skillfully in ways that lead to greater ease and happiness and freedom. So in some ways, the specialized conditions of a retreat are like an incubator an incubator that's allowed us to nurture and support our deepest aspirations, to free ourselves from stress and distress and suffering. But now we're about to leave the incubator. And in response to the vulnerability of that, it's natural at times to experience an intense longing to feel stable and safe and protected again. And the power of practice at this time comes from bringing awareness to how we react to that vulnerability. Because it is possible to respond to it in a way that's in alignment with deepening ease and freedom, rather than perhaps reinforcing our more habitual ways of trying to avoid or deny discomfort. So the Buddha himself, he recognized this human longing for safety. And he also recognized the common tendency to to try to find that safety in places that can't really deliver it. So a few mornings ago, I spoke about this uh, in the reflections when I mentioned a few of the ways that we take what might be thought of as false refuge, looking for comfort or solace or escape in, for example, busyness and overwork or having a big bank balance, or abusing substances such as alcohol and drugs, or perhaps other kinds of addictions to computers, or sex, or food, or shopping, or perhaps obsessive online dating, or romantic fantasies, getting lost in entertainment, or binge-watching TV, or indulging in celebrity gossip. There are just so many ways that we can take false refuge. And some of those things are not bad in and of themselves, but it's how we're relating to them that can be problematic. So if we're using them as strategies to avoid dealing with reality, with the truth of how things are, then eventually they're going to let us down. So we're fortunate that as an alternative to these Uh, temporary but sometimes toxic refuges, the Buddha offered us the three jewels, taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And again, I spoke a bit about those the other morning, so I'm not going to say too much more about them now. I just want to emphasize that even these three refuges are not offered as an end in themselves. They're intended to provide supportive conditions to help us see clearly. Specifically, to gain insight into the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path that leads to freedom. 
In other words, we make use of the refuge of the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha to help us find an even deeper refuge, the refuge of Nibbana. And there's a passage in the Dhammapada that illustrates this purpose of refuge very clearly. I'd like to read you the translation by Gil Fronsdal. It says, People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the ending of suffering, then this is the secure refuge, this is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So in relation to the end of this retreat, the refuge that we can take home with us is the refuge of understanding suffering, dukkha. Because paradoxically, it's the willingness to get close to suffering to really understand it, that brings its release. And this is the promise of the Four Noble Truths, which is also laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta under the fourth establishment of mindfulness. And this is how the Sutta invites us to practice with these Four Noble Truths. One knows as it really is, this is Dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the arising of Dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So what is meant by this word dukkha, usually translated as suffering, this is how the Buddha is said to have defined it. Now this practitioner is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are dukkha, association with the unloved is dukkha, separation from the loved is dukkha, not getting what is wanted is dukkha, in short the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So there's a lot in that one passage, and as if that wasn't enough dukkha already, we can also add in the various forms of collective or institutionalized dukkha that we started to touch into earlier today. So as uh, some teachers and commentators such as David Loy have pointed out, greed, hatred, and delusion play out not only individually, but collectively too. And he says, to further complicate this issue, we also have much more powerful institutions than in the time of the Buddha, in which collective selves often assume a life of their own, in the sense that such institutions have their own motivations built into them. 
our present economic system, and he's talking about the US primarily here, can be understood as institutionalized greed. Our militarism institutionalizes aggression and our corporate media institutionalizes delusion because their primary focus is profiting from advertising and consumerism rather than educating or informing us about what is really happening. So these collective expressions of greed, hatred and delusion are the roots of all forms of social injustice and oppression that all of us have to navigate throughout our lives. That's in addition to the individual forms of dukkha that can come up strongly at the end of a retreat. So again, having to be with what we don't like, being separated from what we do like, not getting what we want, and experiencing all the ways we cling to experience, identifying with it or resisting it. And it's very uh, helpful to be on the lookout for resistance because as I mentioned in the morning reflections the other day, it's this resistance to our experience that plays a very important role in creating suffering. I shared Shinzen Young's formula of S equals P times R, which sounds so so um, simple, but suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. So this coming into greater alignment with the truth of dukkha is paradoxically one way that we can protect ourselves from suffering particularly at the end of a retreat like this though, a longer one, people sometimes have the hope or even the expectation that they'll be able to return to daily life with some newfound immunity to experiencing anything unpleasant. That somehow all of this practice should result in never again having to experience anger or sadness or grief or loneliness or boredom or confusion or doubt. But I think you all understand, at least intellectually, that this is a total setup for more suffering. <laughs> because it's a wrong understanding of what this practice can do for us. It's not about trying to make ourselves live happily ever after. It is about being with experience exactly as it is. And inevitably, at times, we are going to have to be with difficult or painful experiences. But all of this training that we've done helps us to reduce the reactivity to those experiences. And this is a great gift that the Buddha offered us. What I teach now, as before practitioners, is suffering and the cessation of suffering. And amazingly, what the Buddha discovered back then is still relevant and helpful for us here today because what he came to understand are universal truths about our human predicament. And the way the Buddha presented these truths in the form of the Four Noble Truths, or ennobling truths, is interesting. He framed them in terms of a common formula that was used by the healers of his day to diagnose and treat health problems. And the first part of this formula was to diagnose the problem. It's Pretty common sense, we need to know what we're dealing with before we can work out how to treat it. So the Buddha investigated his own experience 
And he also looked around him and saw very clearly that life doesn't always give us what we want. So he came up with the first noble truth. There is dukkha. And the second noble truth that the Buddha discovered is that this dukkha, this dis-ease, has a cause. This cause is craving, also translated as clinging, sometimes thirsting. And this word craving also includes all forms of resisting or pushing away or denying our experience. All the ways we get caught in thinking, if only this were or weren't happening, then I'd be happy. So we keep chasing this illusory happiness, kind of like hamsters on one of those hamster wheels. But fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop there. There is a way to stop this cycle. When we can cut through delusion and understand our craving, we touch into the third noble truth, the truth that it's possible for craving to end, to cease. And this is the potential freedom that all of the Buddha's teachings point to. And it happens on deeper and deeper levels, culminating in the complete liberation of heart and mind, known as Nibbana, enlightenment or awakening. And in one of my earlier talks, I mentioned the concept of temporary Nibbana. This refers to the understanding that whenever the heart and mind are without greed, hatred and delusion, Right there is at least a moment of Nibbana. And in a retreat like this, we might be able to experience some of these moments and get the sense that over time, as the practice develops, these moments become more and more common until eventually they become our default setting and we know complete freedom. For most people, this freedom doesn't just happen spontaneously though. And following the path that the Buddha laid out in the fourth noble truth, coming back to the medical model, this is the prescription that helps us come back to full health. So this prescription is the path known as the Noble Eightfold Path. Right or wise view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. So there are eight factors to this path and it's a very holistic one. And I want to emphasize this because it somehow, sometimes it seems in the way the dharmas come to the West that the two path factors of right mindfulness and right concentration, sati and samadhi, seem to have been given the most emphasis. And as a result, we can unconsciously assume that real practice is the kind of meditation that we do on retreat. And daily life practice is, well, it's just a way of filling in time until our next retreat. But with the end of this retreat, we have a very powerful and valuable opportunity to deepen the other six factors of the path in addition to sati and samadhi. So as we move back into daily life practice, we shift our emphasis from focusing mostly on meditation to including the other factors of the path. And I'm not going to go into all of these in too much detail right now. Instead, I'll talk about them more broadly in terms of the model I referred to in last week's talk where I spoke about some of those skillful chain reactions that we can find throughout the Buddha's teachings.
For example, how dana or generosity is a spiritual practice is presented as the first stage of a sequence that leads quite naturally to sila or ethical conduct, the gift of non-harming. And sila then supports samadhi, those meditation practices that still and stabilize the mind, which gives rise to panya, insight or wisdom. And this interplay between sila and samadhi and panya is one way that the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path are presented. And now, as, we're, as this retreat ends, we're moving into circumstances that teach us more about sila, the relational aspects of the path, how we show up in the world, how we speak, how we behave, how we respond, how we engage. I'll say a little bit more about that soon, but i just like to mention how the template of the Noble Eightfold Path in terms of these three groupings can be a useful one just to examine the development of our own practice and to see are we working all of these different legs of the tripod equally. So at times we might notice that we're putting more emphasis on some of these than others. So, for example, some people love the meditation factors, the samadhi grouping, and they just want to be in intensive retreat all the time. Speaking for myself in the beginning of the practice, I had this secret hope that if I just meditated long enough, hard enough, deeply enough, intensively enough, all of my other problems would just kind of magically implode and I wouldn't have to pay any attention to the rest of my life in terms of ethics or relationships and career and all of that sort of messy stuff. (laughs) So that's one way where um, I'm getting caught in just one of these three arenas and avoiding the others. Other people completely avoid intensive retreat and say that daily life is the real thing, that's where it's at. And perhaps they do pay attention to the path factors of right speech and right action and right livelihood. But because they never develop the stability and stillness of mind that allows deeper insights to arise, it's difficult to progress too far. Other people are more drawn to the wisdom factors of right view and right thought. They love reading and talking about the Buddha's teachings but their understanding stays quite intellectual and they don't engage with this understanding and how it can show up in their own lives. So we can use this framework of sila and samadhi and panya to check whether we are developing all of the path factors equally because it's really when they all come together that they have the most power to free us from dukkha. And now as we come out of retreat, we do have this opportunity to emphasize all of them. Which is not to say that regular meditation practice is uh, not still important. We really do need it as much as ever, because unless there's some stability of mind, it's going to be hard to apply the other path factors. But one of the big challenges of coming out of intensive practice like this is that again, we can develop unrealistic expectations. Often we have this unconscious belief that we should be able to maintain the same level of calm and clarity, even in the midst of our daily lives, as we did under the specialized conditions of this retreat. 
So again, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Another common trap is that um, we sh- the sense that, well, we should be able to live our lives exactly as we always have done and just add a little sprinkling of meditation in the middle of that crazy busyness and still get the benefits of the full path. And particularly as mindfulness becomes more mainstream, there does seem to be this perception that we should just live our lives the way we always have without changing anything. And somehow, if we just wave a little bit of mindfulness over it, everything's going to be all right. But again, this is where the path of sila and samadhi and panya comes in. Because I think most of us in the West, we, we have some sense that, well, if we meditate, our lives will change. But it's not always as clear to us that it works the other way around, too. We need to change our lives in order to meditate more beneficially. It's not realistic to expect that we can just quietly ignore ethical conduct, for example, without that having consequences on the states of our minds and consequently the benefits of the practice. And it's interesting to me that this disconnect was noticed by one of Joseph Goldstein's teachers, Monindraji. I heard that he first came to the U.S. to lead retreats here at IMS not too much longer after it first opened. And Joseph asked Monindraji what his impression was of these new Western meditators. And apparently Monindra said he was impressed by their dedication to getting enlightened but their efforts were undermined by a lack of understanding of sila, of ethical conduct. He said it was like watching people who are trying to row across a river. They were putting lots of efforts into rowing and rowing and rowing, but they hadn't actually untied their boat from the dock. And so, of course, they weren't really getting anywhere. So as we leave retreat and come back into daily life, we might need to look more carefully about how we're living. And if necessary and where possible to make changes in order to support our deeper aspirations. This is applying the wisdom path factors of wise view and wise thought or wise intention. And in a similar way as we move into daily life and we try to establish and maintain a regular meditation practice, it's important to start with realistic goals. It's better to begin with shorter sessions and do them regularly than to set ourselves impossible ideals and then give up after a few days. Because there's yet another common trap that people can fall into after intensive retreat. And that's the tendency to judge our daily life meditation practice in terms of what we experience during the retreat. But again... This is another setup for disappointment because it's unlikely that we can achieve the same levels of calm and clarity and concentration in the midst of our busy lives. So in my own practice, after experiencing this frustration and disappointment for quite some time, I started assessing my daily life meditation not so much in terms of calm and clarity and concentration, but in terms of what other skillful qualities are being developed. And in relation to daily life practice, there is yet another list of qualities that can be very useful. So 
So hopefully you have some stamina to take in one more set of teachings. This is the list known as the Ten Parami that probably many of you are familiar with. And these Ten Parami are usually translated as Ten Perfections. These are qualities that the Buddha-to-be is said to have spent many lifetimes developing as a support for his eventual awakening. And I've heard that in Burma today, sometimes when meditators on retreat get to a point where they don't seem to be making any progress, their teachers will often tell them to go home and develop their parami. So one aspect of these qualities that I appreciate is that they are qualities we can develop in daily life. And in fact, many of them need the challenges of daily life to strengthen. So in a moment, I'll read this list. But first, I just want to mention that this uh, translation of parami as perfection, for some people, can be off-putting because of its association with perfectionism and the tendencies many of us have to feel inadequate. So we can hear this list and assume it's going to be just another set of ways that we don't measure up. But these qualities, one aspect of them that I appreciate is that they're qualities that we all already have to some extent. So I like to think of them as aspects of ourselves that can be polished rather than perfected. Their qualities are already there. And by paying attention to them, bringing them to the foreground, they become brighter and clearer. Just as when we polish a stone or a piece of timber, its natural beauty is highlighted. So I'm going to read the list in a moment and just invite you again to notice any responses that might come up. For some of them, there might be a sense of recognition, while for others, not much response at all. And perhaps for others still, perhaps just a slight sense of recoil. So just notice. These are the ten parami. Generosity or dana. Ethical integrity or sila. Renunciation, nekama. Wisdom, panya. Energy, virya. Patience, kanti. Truthfulness, satcha. Resolve, adatana. Kindness, metta. And equanimity, upekka. So there are many familiar qualities in there. And these are qualities that strengthen and deepen our meditation practice. But our meditation practice also supports the development of the parami. And I want to emphasize this because I know from my own experience and also from talking to many students how frustrating and disappointing it can be to try and recapture the stillness and the peace we may have experienced on retreat back in the middle of our hyper-busy daily lives. So, for example, if I think of what I might ordinarily call a, a bad sitting, one of those meditations where we spend most of the time resisting the urge to check the next te text messages that came in 
or thinking about what we need to get from the supermarket or trying to remember whose turn it is to pick up the kids or wondering whether that twinge of toothache is something we should ignore or go to the dentist about and the mind is just filled with what seems like daily life rubbish. And at the end of a sitting like that, it's uh, common to think, well, that was a waste of time. I might as well have just got up and got on with my day. But if we think in terms of the parami, we've just strengthened, for example, the quality of renunciation, energy, patience, resolve, equanimity, to name just a few. You could also say it's an act of generosity, giving yourself the time and space at the start of a busy day. So these parami can be a useful way of understanding some of the other benefits that come in daily life meditation practice. And they're not only beneficial in meditation practice, but in navigating challenging life situations outside of retreat or meditation too. The kind of situations where it's very easy to turn pain into suffering by getting caught in resistance. So a few years ago, uh, I came across a practice slogan that really shone a spotlight for me on this tendency towards resistance in my own practice. I first heard it from Eugene Cash, and I think I may have shared it before, but he said, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And as soon as I read that, I recognized how often I was thinking, if only X hadn't happened, then I'd be able to practice. If only X was possible, then I'd really be able to practice. If only I didn't have to deal with X all the time, then I'd really be able to practice. And I think all of us have our own variations of X. So whatever you think X is, X being the obstacle to your happiness right now, what might it be like to make that your practice? If it's in the way, it is the way. And again, depending on what X represents for you, Some of that practice might need to be compassion or self-compassion. So to give an example of how this understanding can work together with the paramis uh, from my own life, a few years ago now, I'd been at IMS for a while, and I went back to New Zealand to spend time with my parents for Christmas. Back then, my father's health was declining, both physically and mentally. He's since passed, but... A couple of years ago, his dementia was increasing and he needed full-time care from my mother. So it was a a stressful time and I'd been visiting my parents as often as I could to make sure they were coping. And on previous visits, they seemed to be mostly doing okay. But on this particular visit, it was a couple of weeks before Christmas and pretty much as soon as I arrived, everything started to fall apart. So I hadn't even been there 24 hours when my mother knocked on my door at five o'clock in the morning and said my father had fallen over on his way to the bathroom and she couldn't get him up. So the two of us did our best, but we just couldn't get him back on his feet. And we had to call the ambulance, which took quite a while to get there. So I was lying on the floor next to my father, trying to do a crossword puzzle with him to sort of pass the time and 
Eventually, two kind paramedics came and they hauled him back on his feet and he was okay. And I remember thinking, phew, got through that. Okay, so my mother went off to make breakfast, but she was a little bit flustered and she dropped a huge jug of milk spilled all over the floor. So, okay, went and cleaned that up and she... I mopped the floor and then she decided she would go and get some more milk from the store. And then I heard a calling from the garage. The roller door is just jammed. Can you uh, fix it? I can't get out of here. <laughs> so I went and checked out the roller door and sure enough there was this horrible grating sound of metal on metal. And got out the tools and to my surprise I was able to fix it. So I was like, okay, another test, but everything's back on track, literally. So far, so good. It's about nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, my father called out and said he wanted to go for a walk. But he just realized that the brake cable on his walking frame wasn't working, and would I be able to fix it for him? Well, I'd never really been a walker mechanic, but again, I went and got some tools and Again, to my surprise, I worked out what the issue was and I was able to fix it. I was like, okay, well, this is getting a bit much, but okay, it's all okay. So to celebrate that small victory, my father and I went out for a little stroll around the garden and he really loved his garden. And before his uh, mind got too impaired, he'd spent quite a bit of time setting up an irrigation system for it. Didn't look quite like the ones you see on the gardening show, though. He'd sort of rigged it together with all kinds of bits of plastic and nozzles and connectors and short lengths of hoses. And as we toured around the garden, I noticed it wasn't quite working the way it was supposed to. There was no water coming out of where we thought it should. And when we came around the corner, there was a lot of water coming out where it wasn't supposed to. So it was actually flooding the garage. <laughs> And I thought, okay, well, this is getting a little bit insane, but it's okay, it looks like I'm going to have to deal with it. So again, I went and got some tools and <laughs> managed to stop the flooding and got pretty soaked in the process. And by this time, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I went back inside and I got changed, put on clean, dry clothes. And Meanwhile, my mother had been decorating the Christmas tree and installing it in the bay window at the front of the living room. And she invited me over to go and take a look at it. And as I was going there, I heard this screech and came into the living room and discovered that a bird had flown in through the back door and it was flying around the room in a total panic. And then it crash landed on top of the Christmas tree <laughs> and knocked it over. <laughs> and pooped on the fallen branches, <laughs> and then flew back outside. <laughs> so by the time I arrived, there was just this pile of broken glass ornaments and bird poop and pine needles <laughs> that all had to be cleaned up, which took me over an hour. And all the time I was thinking, what is the universe or karma trying to tell me here? And I started to get a little bit paranoid. I was looking for hidden cameras on the ceiling because I had this thought, am I in some kind of Buddhist reality TV show? <laughs> like, and then I realized if I was, it would be called Test Your Parami. 
and it, that moment was actually a turning point because then I recognized all of the resistance that was underneath this trying to fix everything. Everything was falling apart and I didn't want it to. I wanted to fix it and I wanted it to stay fixed. And then I remembered if it's in the way, it is the way. So what can I learn from this situation? And I started to think of the parami and realize there's plenty of um, things that I can appreciate here, ways that I can strengthen these qualities as resources, not only for that moment, but for many other times that I got to spend with my parents. So again, this is a fairly minor example of dealing with challenging situations. But I want to particularly highlight the last of these 10 parami, which is equanimity. Because in my own experience of coming off retreat, it's this one, perhaps more than any of them, that's been a real lifesaver. Perhaps because it's kind of a hinge between wisdom and compassion. It has the wisdom aspect of clear seeing. And it's also a heart quality. As you know, it's one of the Brahma-vihara that we can cultivate. So equanimity is another way of saying non-resistance. But as Winnie mentioned the other night, non-resistance doesn't mean becoming a doormat. Instead, it's an invitation to make space, to make space between the stimulus and the response, to use Viktor Frankl's words because it's that space that gives us a chance to respond with wisdom and compassion rather than react out of habit. So a few weeks ago I talked about uh, the mantra of ABC that I borrowed from the Zen teacher Charlotte Joko Beck. And again, this is about making space. So ABC is about making a bigger container. It's the practice of noticing when we've clamped down or contracted in resistance to something. And right in that moment, trying to make a bigger container, trying to make more space for it, in whatever ways are practical. So if we're doing formal meditation practice and we notice that kind of clamping down, it might mean that we sit up straighter. We might breathe a little more deeply and open the chest and soften the shoulders. Or if we're feeling quite triggered, we might open the eyes, take in the space of the room, or orient to sounds to help us give a bigger perspective. Similarly, if we're in daily life, we might just look at the sky for a moment. This has the same effect of taking us out of our small world. Or if we're, in, if we're in a really challenging situation, we might need to more literally make a bigger container by moving away for some period of time. The point is that we do this consciously as a way to help us come back to balance rather than just fleeing in panic. And having said that, every one of us here, we will at times get caught in reactivity. We are going to make mistakes. There's no way around it. Even the Buddha was unable to please everyone all the time. In some ways I find this reassuring. There's a single sentence in the Dhammapada that I love in relation to this. It says, There never was, there never will be, nor is there now, 
a person who is wholly blamed or wholly praised. So if even the Buddha wasn't immune to criticism, we ourselves probably don't have too much chance of being perceived as perfect. So we can take this as again as an invitation to meet our reactivity with self-compassion, self-forgiveness rather than self-judgment. And that way we avoid adding all those extra arrows or darts that we've been talking about. So again, this brings us back to the second of the two wings of awakening, the wing of compassion. And compassion can arise quite naturally when we open to and acknowledge the sometimes intense feelings of vulnerability, anxiety, even fear, as we prepare to leave behind this beautiful community, the community that we've been creating together over the last six or 12 weeks. We've been in this community for a while now. And perhaps at first it was rough, but somehow we've managed to get used to each other and we've at least mostly learned to appreciate each other's quirks. Perhaps even in the depths of silence, at times to feel the spiritual friendship that's being offered and received. But now this community is about to dissolve. And in response, we might feel at times acute tenderness in our own hearts. So speaking for myself again, sometimes coming out of a longer retreat like this, I can feel like I've just been through open heart surgery. And if that's the case, you might need to really respect that tenderness. At times it is appropriate to withdraw for a while so that we can come back to balance. We need to respect the natural rhythms of the heart and not try to force ourselves to stay open permanently or on the other hand to close down indefinitely. Everything in nature has its rhythm including our own hearts and attending to this rhythm is a profound act of self-compassion. So a few years ago, I was exploring this rhythm of the heart opening and closing in my own practice. And a vivid image came to mind, an image of the marine creature known as a sea anemone in English. So sea anemones are those small, brightly colored, jelly-like, blobby things that live in rock pools. And I first uh, encountered these when I was a child living in Scotland. On family holidays to the beach, we would often go exploring the rock pools at low tide. And clinging to the side of these rock pools were colonies of these multicolored sea anemones, blobs of red or brown or orange jelly, and they had these translucent tentacles that swayed in the currents. And my father showed me how you could reach down and touch their tentacles and instantly the tentacles would retract and they'd become a smooth blob of jelly. And as a five-year-old, I was totally fascinated and I wanted to know why, why do they do that? Later on, I found it was so they could stay safe but I also found out that when the sea anemone's tentacles are retracted, they can't feed. So at some point they have to take the risk and open up again. And I thought, that's like our hearts. 
we alternate between these periods of needing to stay safe and then needing to open and to feed, to find nourishment through contact with others. (coughs) So this nourishment through contact with others is another very powerful support when we come out of retreat. So this uh, experience that we've just been through together is quite unique and not everyone is going to understand it or even appreciate it. So it's definitely worth making the effort to establish and strengthen Dharma friendships. We can think of this as another way of practicing dana, the gift of generosity, offering and receiving spiritual friendship. So if you're lucky enough to have Dharma friends who live in your area, you could consider perhaps making a commitment to get together once a month or every couple of months to do a half day or a full day of practice together. Sitting and walking in silence, listening to a Dharma talk, having a group discussion, maybe sharing a meal, any way you can to help stay connected to each other and to the practice. For others of you, perhaps you don't have that uh, good fortune to have people living nearby who are interested in this practice. So you might consider setting up your own sitting group, inviting people from your neighborhood. Or if that doesn't seem feasible, meeting regularly with a Dharma friend online. Again, this is another powerful way we can stay connected and For myself, I found this really valuable because, as I think you know, I travel a lot and so I do use uh, video calls to stay connected with students and with uh, Sangha friends. And in spite of the technology, I found it a very powerful way of practicing together. So we can use the connections with each other for support this gift of sangha. And another powerful use of sangha in my own practice uh, is particularly at those times that when things feel rough, I might consciously bring to mind sangha in the form of some of my teachers, mentors, perhaps also monks and nuns or people who've inspired me people who I really have a sense have walked this path and are ahead of me in some way. So when I'm experiencing those challenges, I might imagine them walking alongside me, offering me encouragement, or perhaps ahead of me, showing me the way. I bring to mind their good qualities and acknowledge that Just as I'm going through challenges right now, chances are they have been through something similar. And as far as I can tell, they've come out the other side in pretty good shape. So it's possible for me too to do the same. And this is just one way of cultivating the quality of faith that Nakawe spoke of so beautifully last night. So we can orient to Sangha in terms of spiritual friends, in terms of our teachers and guides and mentors. And again, because of technology, we also have the opportunity to uh, take inspiration from people we perhaps haven't met. So these days, uh, through online recordings and other media, we're fortunate 
to have access to a much wider range of voices than we ever have before. So to pick just one example, a few years ago I read a book by a teacher called Zenju Earthland Manuel. It's called The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality and Gender. Some of you might know it. So Zenju Earthland Manuel is an author, a poet, a Zen priest and a Dharma heir of uh, the late Zenke Blanche Hartman. And although on the surface of it, our lives might seem very different, seeing as I'm situated as a, a white woman, straight, from a working class, later middle, middle class family, living in a different country. On one level, our lives might look quite different. But for me, the description of her life journey in this book was incredibly inspiring just the courage that she showed in facing into the intense challenges of her life. They encouraged me to turn and face my own dukkha more fully. And there are many passages from that book that I could share with you, but I've chosen just one that perhaps might be relevant in relation to some of the explorations we've been doing today around this theme of collective dukkha or oppression. So Zenju Eslin Manuel says, Oppression is a distortion of our true nature. It disconnects us from the earth and from each other. Awakening from the distortion of oppression begins with tenderness. We recognize our own wounded tenderness, which develops into the tenderness of vulnerability and culminates in the tenderness that comes with heartfelt, authentic liberation. The first experience of tenderness is a cry from deep within our own nature. It compels us to seek out reconnection to the earth and to each other. As soon as we're born, we begin to drift away from our own true nature. We align with established structures that immediately begin to fix our perceptions of others and ourselves. Our lives are shaped by this alignment. Falling into line is a survival mechanism driven by the suffering that already surrounds us at birth. As we grow older and more accustomed to the structures that shape us, our own true nature calls to us. This calling can be experienced as a place of separation and suffering. In attending to such suffering, we start down many paths in order to recover the connectedness we lost. For many of us, the request to recover what we feel we have lost extends into social activism, pursuit of spiritual awakening, or both. And she goes on to say, In my own case, I have experienced spiritual awakening by walking through the fiery gateway of attending to the suffering related to race, sexuality, and gender. So each of us will have our own fiery gateway to walk through, the fiery gateway of our own suffering in whatever various forms it takes. And for me, that passage is a powerful reminder that this practice does at times take courage. It's not easy, 
but it's well worth it. Because what we're doing here is an incomparable gift to the world. And I'd like to invite you to see if you can touch into that sense of gift. Suspend any assessment of what you think you've achieved or you haven't achieved here on this retreat. And perhaps experiment that trusting that it will be of benefit to you and everyone you encounter. These benefits will ripen and integrate according to different time frames. Some of them might be immediately obvious, but others might take many months to become apparent. But all of us have planted many good seeds over these last six or 12 weeks, and they will ripen in their own time. So can you get a sense of that right now? All the good qualities, the parami, that have been powerfully strengthened over these last weeks and months. Just a moment to check in. So hopefully you recognized at least some beneficial qualities. And recognizing our strengths like this helps them to become resources for our journey our life's journey through our own fiery gateways. And I'd like to close with a quote from Pema Chodron that brings us back to the theme of refuge that we began with. She says, working with obstacles is a life's journey. The warrior is always coming up against dragons. Of course, the warrior gets scared particularly before the battle. It's frightening. But with a shaky, tender heart, the warrior realizes that they are just about to step into the unknown, and then they go forth to meet the dragon. The warrior realizes that the dragon is nothing but unfinished business presenting itself, and that it's fear that really needs to be worked with. The dragon is just a motion picture that appears there, And it appears in many forms, as the lover who jilted us, as the parent who never loved us enough, as someone who abused us. Basically, what we work with is our fear and our holding back, which are necessarily obstacles. The only true obstacle is ignorance, this refusal to look at our unfinished business. If every time the warrior goes out and meets the dragon and says, ha, that's that dragon again, no way am I going to face this, and then just splits, then life becomes a recurring story of getting up in the morning, going out, meeting the dragon, saying no way, and splitting. In that case, you become more and more timid, more and more afraid, more of a baby. No one's nurturing you, but you're still in the cradle and you never go through your puberty rites. So we say we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in the Sangha. Well, we aren't talking about finding comfort in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. We aren't talking about prostrating or bowing in order to be safe. The Buddha, we say traditionally, 
is the example of what we also can be. The Buddha is the awakened one, and we too are the Buddha. It's simple. We are the Buddha. It's not just a way of speaking. We are the awakened one, meaning one who continually leaps, one who continually opens, one who continually goes forward. So may we all continually leap and open and go forward through the fiery gateways of our own lives on this path to freedom. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.